It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. I cannot wait for you to meet my guest today. Adam Alter, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Adam is from Sydney, Australia, and he's written a book. It's called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Wow. <laughs> and I've got questions. Excellent. All right. Why do I look at my phone 50 times a day whether I need to or not? Because you never know, like a slot machine, when you're going to get a reward. Every time you check an email, it could be something fantastic or it could be something mundane or maybe you don't have one at all. The same is true of every social media experience you have. You send something out into the world. Sometimes you get great feedback. Sometimes you don't. And that question mark is something that humans find really compelling. You're a psychologist. I am. Yeah, that's what my PhD is in. So you're perfect for this topic. So why does my 77-year-old father play free cell all day long? (laughs) <laughs> or I say, I call it solitary. It says it's free cell, Billy. It's free cell, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, some of the, the mechanisms behind these games that make, make them so addictive are things like goals. If you create a goal for a human and the goal is open, you say something like get a thousand followers on Instagram or solve this puzzle or finish a, a game of free cell or whatever it may be. It doesn't really matter what it is. Humans love goals and when they're open, they feel uncomfortable and so they strive to, to close the goal, to close that loop. And I think that's what happens with most of these games. So it keeps you coming back on the gaming aspect. You talk a lot about gaming in your book. I do, yeah. But personally, I'm not a big gamer, but um, I appreciate what you offered on that. When I'm unwinding at the end of the day, I find myself staring at my iPad, just moving the screen right and left and going, well, I haven't checked that app lately. Yeah. Why do I do that? Yeah, it's like a merry-go-round. Basically, you keep returning to the same things, and when a few minutes have passed, you go back to check again. And that's how social media gets you in particular, that you know, five minutes goes by, and there are a thousand more tweets for you to check. It's, it's the bottomlessness of these experiences that means that you can keep coming back and you'll get new information. And that's why people now say they'll, they'll check, say, news sites or mm-hmm. social media you know, a hundred times a day because there's always something different. That's not how the world works. Take me, take me into the mentality of designing the software then, if, whether it's Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook, you know, pick your site. What are the companies doing? What do they understand that keeps bringing me back. Well, if you think about the way we consume media in the 20th century, there was a, there's an end to everything. These are called stopping cues, the cues that said, like, you're at the end of a chapter of a book, move on to the next thing. The TV episode ends, it comes back in a week. What these companies do today is they remove those stopping cues. So everything's bottomless. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, you just have this endless feed that's refreshed instantly every couple of seconds or instantly right now, mm. which means that you can keep coming back and never that- stop. Has that existed before we started carrying phones around in our pocket? Not as much, no. This is a really new thing, and I think it's being engineered into the experiences we have today in a way that was never true before. Mm. There is a physical addiction to nicotine. Yes. Right? Sure. There can be a physical addiction to alcohol. Mm -hmm. Is there a physical 
addiction to technology well see or or is it genetic or how would you answer that yeah so i you know people think of addiction when you think of the stereotype you think addiction is about a substance that you ingest it's like a a drug or alcohol or nicotine or whatever it might be but it turns out that behaviors can be just as addictive think of gambling think of a lot of the experiences we have on our smartphones because they do the same thing in your brain but also they treat the same psychological issues whether it's you know, for a lot of us, it's boredom. You get into an elevator for five seconds, everyone will pull out their phones mm-hmm. because we just don't have a threshold for boredom. We, we get bored so easily that the phone comes in. It's almost like you're trying to fill that space. I, I think that's always, I think in the elevator example, I think the sm- that, that pause would have been filled with chatter about the weather or name your topic. Today, I I would assume that you can fill up that space by pulling out your phone. Yeah, I you know it's interesting. I think we we are you know naturally a bored species. We get bored pretty easily, and we we fill the space with small talk and all sorts of other things. But our attention spans have shrunk. So there's this study showing that about 15 years ago, our attention spans were roughly 12 seconds long. If you showed us something that was interesting, we'd pay attention for about 12 seconds. Now we're talking about eight seconds Mm. and here's the thing a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds so now we are being (laughs) dominated and defeated by goldfish (laughs) soothing (laughs) i live in new york and i've been here 15 years and i notice i ride my bike i walk a lot i run and in new york city the even streets generally run west to east and the odd streets generally run east to west. Right. And if you're walking fast or running or riding a bike, which can be very dangerous in this town, you need to know what street you're coming up on. Do you need to look to your right? Do you need to look to your left? And I have found over the past two years that I'm losing my ability to determine whether I'm coming up on an even street or an odd street. And when I'm on my bike, that's a very dangerous possibility. Does that fit into what you are describing? Yeah, we're we're basically always multitasking now. That was never true before in the same way, that there's always a million things that are interesting to us, and a lot of them happen to just be in our pockets all the time. We know that people have their phones on them, most of us, 24 hours a day. And so you're constantly being distracted. I, I guess my question is, I know there are distractions all over New York City. They're on every street corner. Sure. Is my level of concentration hurt or injured or lessened because I'm always into the technology? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I think uh, So I'm not going crazy. You're not going crazy. You're you're just like everyone else. You know, we all live in this social media world, this screen world, and I think it's harder and harder for us to pay attention. You mentioned something on our program, America's Newsroom, when you first appeared with us. And you said something changed significantly when Facebook added the like button. Yes. What year was that? That was 2006. Uh, So we're 11 years down the road. What changed when Facebook did that? The content on Facebook used to be mostly static. You'd post information about yourself. People would read it. And what changed was you could get feedback. So now when you posted something, people could say, I like that, or I, they could say nothing. And so you were very sensitive to the number of likes you were getting, whether people were ignoring you. It was basically this engine for social feedback, which humans find absolutely fascinating. Hmm. 
Let me read a few things that um, I think these come from you. So um, confirm or deny. Absolutely. Seventy percent of office emails are read within six seconds of arrival. Isn't that crazy? Six seconds. I mean, it's it's no time at all. But the minute you have a ping, you know when you've got your phone in your pocket and uh-huh. it's on vibrate and it vibrates and you know you've got a message, you cannot concentrate on anything else fully until you check what that message or email is. And that's what happens in the office space. That's why it's only six seconds. Now, it did not say respond within six seconds. It just said. It just check. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 80% of teenagers check their phones at least an hour. Yeah. I'm sorry, at least once an hour. At least once an hour. I I thought it'd be more. That's out of date now. Yeah, no, I would say it's now probably once every few minutes. I mean, uh, that's uh, the idea that teens are checking their emails, you know, every, say, 10 minutes or five or 10 minutes is uncontroversial now. And I think it's absolutely Mm. true. 46% of people, I don't know what the study is, so you go ahead and determine. Sure. 46% of people say they could not bear to live without their smartphone. Some would rather suffer physical injury or injury to their phones. (laughs) Yeah. Where does that come from? Yeah, this is a, this is research where you ask people, imagine that you had to make a choice. Obviously, it's not a pleasant choice, but you've got to decide either you will have a bone in your hand broken or you will have your phone broken right now. Which one do you choose? <laughs> Which seems like it should have an obvious right answer. <laughs> right. But almost half of all people will say, oh, that's really tough. I think I'm going to go with a broken bone in the hand because at least while I'm recovering, as long as I can use the other hand, I can use my that's phone. Unbelievable. It's crazy, yeah. So it's an extreme, Man. extreme result. Uh, there's something called no mobile phobia, yeah. which is shortened to nomophobia. Nomophobia. So you're a psychologist. What is that? Nomophobia, you know, if you imagine going out, you walk out the door, you head to work, you're 20 minutes into your journey, you realize you've left your phone at home, or say you have your phone in your pocket, it drops, and you watch in slow motion as it hits the ground and shatters. How do you feel about that? If that thought of being without your phone for a certain period of time makes you sweat and makes you feel uncomfortable, you may be one of the many hundreds of millions of people in the world with nomophobia. In fact, if you put all the nomophobes together and made a nation of them, it would be the third or fourth most populous nation on Earth. Come on. Yeah. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. Is this damaging us as people? I think it's changing the way we interact with each other for the worse. I think it's making it harder for us to connect. You, you go to a, a restaurant, you see a family of people together who should be spending that quality time mm-hmm. interacting, and instead they're all on separate devices. And that's not even unusual. That's common. If you walk into any restaurant in New York City or anywhere else, you will find at least one, maybe two, maybe three tables where you have all these people together but alone on their phones. So that's one-on-one interaction. Yeah. But there could be a, a plus side to this too. And that's the ability to stay in contact with family or friends that you would otherwise not be in contact with or know about what was happening in their kid's soccer game. Absolutely. Or the high school reunion or pick your poison. Sure, absolutely. No, I think the reason we have these conversations about the addictive nature of technology is because they are so – these pieces of tech are miraculous. My family is in Australia – the only way I can communicate with them in a way that means that we keep in touch regularly is because of these screens that allow me to, to talk to them and see their, their faces moving and you know have what feels like a real interaction. I couldn't have done that 15 or 20 years ago, and I'm thankful for it. But it's so engaging that you end up just leaving the real world behind sometimes. So you then are trying to explain how you can use this to your advantage 
but to be aware of how it could be a disadvantage in your life. Exactly. Yeah. There's always a balance, right? I mean, I'm not saying we should roll back to the 1950s here that no one should have any technology, but I think it's so hard for us now to live in the real world without screens around that it's important that we try hard to at least capture some of our time, make it sacred, make it screen and tech free, you know, do something outdoors, play with your pets, with have fun <laughs> with your family, you know, do the things that seem like they were kind of um, obvious things that we used to do 20, 30, 40 years ago that seem to have disappeared from everyday life now. Mm. Feed the goldfish. Feed the goldfish. <laughs> 95% of adults, you report, use an electronic device that emits light in the hour before bed, and more than half check their emails overnight. Yeah. More than half yeah, I, check well, their emails yeah, actually, overnight. It, one in six or seven people sleep with their phone under their beds, under their pillows. I believe so, that. Yeah. Here's what I do. I keep it in the kitchen, I keep it plugged in, and I keep it on silent. It's really smart because at night when you use your phone in the hour before bed, you're inducing jet lag. It's like staring into the sun and feeling like it's daytime just before you go to bed because the light that your phone emits, your body interprets it like sunlight. It feels like you're in the sun. And so you're, you're getting jet lag every time you use your phone in the hour before bed. It's really important not to do that. In the hour before. Yes. So I need to get the iPad out of the bedroom. Yes, you do. <laughs> you also write, some of the world's greatest public technocrats are also their greatest private technophobes. Yeah. And you explain right. the founder of Twitter, or one of the founders, Evan Williams, Chris Anderson, former editor of Wired, Steve Jobs. They would limit how much technology their kids use in the home. Yeah. So what did they understand or what do they understand yeah. for their own families? Well, I mean, this is why I wrote the book, because I started doing some research and I found that, the, you know, the real experts in this world are the people who make these devices and who make products for the screens. So Steve Jobs, first, for example, when he released the iPad, he got up on stage and said this is the best way to consume all sorts of different media, to watch videos, to interact with people. But when he was interviewed a couple of months later, he, he said, uh, I don't let my kids use devices at home. We limit how much technology we use. So I, I think they, they understand that these screens get in the way of, the, of social lives, of, of development, mental development for kids, and that they're quite damaging if they're overused. And they, a, lot of them, a lot of these experts keep that, their phones from their kids. That must surprise a lot of people. I think it does. I think it does. You'd expect that, you know, if you're in the, the tech business, that you're going to show your kids as much tech early on as you can so that they're up to speed. But these are the people who know what, what technology does, and yeah. they are concerned. A couple of suggestions, then, for our listening audience. What would you say about being mindful about how technology can invade your life? Yeah, I, well, I think the two best things you can do, the first thing is to carve out at least part of the day where your screens are not around. So what, what I say to a lot of people, and I follow them as they've done this, is start out with, say, dinner time. We have dinner every day. Make dinner time a screen-free time for you, no matter whether you're alone with other people at a restaurant, at home, and it'll become a habit. And you'll see that you'll feel... It'll be hard at first because you'll have FOMO. You'll wonder what you're missing out mm -hmm. on. But then you'll start to feel really good about it, and you might even expand it to other areas of your life. But, of course, uh, for a lot of us, for much of the day, we need our phones with us. The best thing to do is to turn off as many push notifications as you can because what you're allowing then is every time your phone pings you and says – you have a new message, you should check this thing on Twitter or whatever, you're giving control over to your phone instead of having the control yourself. The less of that you have from the phone, the less you give it that power, the better. Because that means you can return to the phone whenever you want to check things. Mm. Is that easier said than done? Well, to some extent. But I mean, the, the, these notifications, 
you can turn them off and you can go and check your phone. If you want, you can check it every half hour or every hour. That's still better than having the phone ping you every five seconds to say, check yeah. this out, check I think this out. You're exactly right about that. Yeah. Uh, that's a really great. My mother asked me six months ago, Billy, I keep seeing these things from all my friends and <laughs> I, how do I get out of this? And I showed her exactly that. Yeah. Notifications on Facebook. Don't check email you suggest after six o'clock at night. Yeah, look, there are companies in in Europe now that do this. What they have is uh, my favorite example is this Dutch design firm in the Netherlands, and what they do is they tether the desks in the company to the ceiling, and at six p.m. it doesn't matter what you're doing if you're working there, the the desks automatically rise on this kind of winch. They're cranked up to the ceiling, so you have to stop using email at six p.m. <laughs> and they turn the room into a yoga studio. That's great, which is a fantastic idea. Now, you know, we can't all stop using email at six p.m., but I think the basic idea stands that you should have a cutoff period where mm-hmm. you know now is is my time when i'm not going to be honestly I, I could not do this job if i turned off email at six o'clock at night it's true for many of us actually now a lot of jobs require that we're that hooked in you know the network effects are such that in a lot of our jobs we need to be online all the time or almost all the time which makes it even more important that we carve yeah. out time. we are just now beginning to understand how to grapple with this yeah would you agree we're in the early stages very new issue yeah these forms of tech have only been around for 10 years are you able to see what comes next then in our ability to manage this well i think we're becoming smarter about it i think as consumers we are learning how to turn off some of the hooks that that are you know embedded and baked into these products so turning off push notifications is a great example of that i think we are going to become savvier as a as a species consuming these forms of tech over time but i think we also need to demand a little more from the companies that produce them that they mm. care about our well-being like what like you know there are certain tools that are baked into a lot of these these products and the companies pick and choose them and they bake them into the products but they don't have to be in all of them we might start to demand that they have things that you know options for example where we can turn off certain certain things like push notifications used to be kind of a consistent feature of these products and it was very hard to turn them off. Now on the phones, it's easier to do that because we've demanded that. We demand certain privacy settings as well, the ability to turn off how much of our information is shared. I think as consumers, we are starting to become more demanding. I wonder as we change as consumers, how long before the technology companies change again well it's an arms race right and they're going to keep uh, keep changing and keep making their products as hard for us to resist as possible uh there there is no real solution except to say that you know we we demand from companies that they are environmentally sound in their practices we don't want them dumping pollutants in the water and we used to not care about that so much but we care about it more now and i think what's happening in the tech space is we're demanding that these companies think more about what their products are doing to us as consumers we will start to demand Mm -hmm. more things from them and I think that's what's starting to happen. For the record, I, I want people to know that when you came in our studio, you put your phone in airplane mode. That is true. Why? Because <laughs> airplane mode turns your phone basically into a dumb phone in a lot of respects. And, and a dumb was, phone? Yeah, a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. So you, you basically use it as a camera. I do this on Saturdays now when I'm spending time with my wife and son. We spend the day as much as possible with our phones in airplane mode because it means we can use the camera on the phone, but we won't get emails, we won't get texts. 
we can't check social media, and that's really, I think, mm. a huge part of our well-being on those Saturdays. Wow. It's really been a, a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about this. Thanks so much for having me. It, it is all around us, Adam, so thanks for writing the book. Thank you, Bill. Uh, my guest is Adam Alter out of Sydney, Australia. The book is called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Good luck. Thank you very much. And to our audience, good luck to you as well. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmertown. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.